Well, good morning. Some time ago, I read the story about a mother who was tucking her young son into bed. It was a summer evening, and there was a severe storm going on. As she got up to leave the room, the little boy suddenly said with a trembling voice, Mommy, can, can you stay with me all night long? The mother came back and gave the boy a reassuring hug, and then, and then she said, I, I can't, honey. Uh, I need to stay with Daddy tonight. There was some silence for a moment, and the little boy suddenly spoke up with his shaky voice. He said, that big baby. Although the boy didn't really understand the point that the mom was making, I think we would all agree that, that even as adults sometimes, we still worry, we have anxiety sometimes, we have fears that come into our lives, all of us. I might have thought that by now I would have grown significantly in my faith so that I'd no longer worry anymore, but that's just not the case. Even now, on occasion, I'll go to bed and I'll wake up at about two o'clock in the morning and suddenly my mind is just swirling with all kinds of thoughts. There'll be worries and fears and concerns. I'll think about things that I need to do or things that I've forgotten to do. I'll think of, of work matters or things related to the family or, or my own personal matters. And oftentimes, I'll deal with one of these things and then another one will pop up. I've learned, by the way, that when this happens, one of the best things that I can do is to get up, and I usually spend some time praying about it, praying about every single thing that's bothering me in the middle of the night. And then I'll also write it down and decide to do something in the morning about it, because oftentimes we know you can't do anything at night about these things, and problems seem so much worse at night. And so I'll write them down, and then I'll, I'll know that they're kind of taken care of for the time being, and then I'll go back to bed. But I suspect all of us can relate to this, and especially during these times, so much is going on, and it's just easy to worry and be concerned. Well, today we want to continue our series titled, No Worries. It's a series that's based on Philippians 4.6, where the apostle Paul said we shouldn't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we should let our requests be made known to God. And he promises that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now I acknowledge it's easier to read that verse than to apply it to our lives. But we don't have to worry. Now this whole series, we're gonna be covering stories of different individuals in the Bible who faced circumstances where they were worried, where they were afraid, and rightfully so. It's understandable why, why each of the characters we're gonna look at was afraid. But with each story, I want to focus on one particular lesson that we can apply to our lives. And so last week, we told the story of Jacob, and Jacob was told by God to return home after he'd been away for 20 years. And he was afraid to go back home because the last time he had seen his brother, his brother had threatened to kill him. And as he got closer to his home, a messenger came and said, your brother's coming to meet you with 400 men. And he was so afraid. But last week, I made the point that we need to stand on the promises of God. We look at the prayer that Jacob prayed in the book of Genesis, and it's an amazing prayer. He basically said, God, you're the one who told me to go home, but you've also promised me that you'd be with me. You promised you would bless me. You promised that my descendants would be like the sand of the seashore, and you would take care of me. And he, he prayed the promises of God, and God's word is filled with amazing promises that we can apply to our lives. Well, today I'd like to focus on the story of a prophet named Elijah. 
His story is found in 1 Kings beginning in chapter 17. Elijah was an amazing prophet of God who who served God in the 8th century before Christ was born, and he, he prophesied in a very difficult time for Israel, a time in which the nation was very wicked and had turned away from God. This morning, I'm going to look at some of the highlights of his story, and we're going to see why he was afraid. We're also going to see, though, that he didn't need to be afraid because God had proved or proven to Elijah time and time again his faithfulness. And yet, Elijah didn't remember. Now, in order to set the context of why Elijah was afraid, we're going to have to look toward the end of the story. Because toward the very end of the story, we have an occasion where the king's wife, Jezebel, threatened to kill Elijah. She was very upset with him because he had had the prophets of Baal and Asherah put to death. 850 prophets that used to sit at her table This is the wife of the king of Israel, but she had led Israel astray. She, by the way, had murdered the prophets and priests of Israel, the ones who served the true and living God. And she threatened him when she learned what he had done. We pick up the story in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 2, where we read, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree, which is about a 15-foot tree, but it doesn't provide a lot of shade, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Now, let me stop here. We all get discouraged at times. We all get afraid at times. And and I don't condemn Elijah for that. I find it quite understandable that he would be afraid. Again, Jezebel, who was making the threat against his life, had already killed most of the priests and prophets in Israel. And so Elijah knew this was not an idle threat. And so I don't want to minimize the fear that he had. But as I look at his story, I have to admit that I'm a little bit confused Because God had done so many things in his life to prove that God would take care of him and yet he didn't remember these things. What I want to make a case for here today is this, and what I hope you walk away with is this. We won't have to worry about the future if we remember how God has taken care of us in the past. We won't have to worry about the future if we remember how God has taken care of us in the past. You know, when someone sits down for a job interview, the boss many times will ask a question related to something that that employee did in the past. And the reason they ask a question like this is that they believe that past performance is an indication of future performance. And so maybe this boss who's who's doing the hiring will ask a question like, give me a situation where you disagreed with your boss and what did you do? And again, the boss is asking that question to get an idea of how that person will handle things in the future when he or she disagrees with him or her. The past performance oftentimes is an indication of future performance. Well, this is true with God as well. God continued to take care of Elijah, but he forgot. 
Let's begin looking at some of the stories involving Elijah. I want to make the point that, that God provided for him, God answered his prayers, and God proved himself to Elijah time and time again. But let's talk about, first of all, God's provision. We read in verse 1 of 1 Kings 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Elijah was telling King Ahab that there was going to be a famine in the land and that it was going to last for a few years. I think it's important for us to realize that centuries earlier, God had told the Israelites that if they abandoned him, if they turned away and went after false gods, that he would send famine on the land, pestilence on the land. He would have their nation attacked by other nations. All of it was an attempt to get them to turn back to God. It was really the love of God trying to steer them back to God. And we know this is often the case. When I hear people's stories of how they came to faith in Jesus Christ, oftentimes part of their story was, my life fell apart, everything was going wrong in my life, and then I turned to God. It's times like this that our hearts turn back to God, and this is what the nation of Israel should have done. We know from the book of James that this famine lasted three and a half years, and so it was a very severe famine. But during this time, God took care of Elijah. We read in verse 2 of 1 Kings 17, then a revelation came from the Lord to him, leave here, turn eastward, and hide eastward and hide yourself at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he did what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived by the Wadi Sherith, which enters, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. And he drank from the Wadi. After a while, the Wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. This is a story of amazing provision for Elijah. A tremendous story where God provided for his needs by giving him bread and meat every morning delivered by some ravens. This is just a remarkable story. And Elijah got his his water from the wadi. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the wadi, a wadi is basically a dry riverbed that is dry most of the year, but then during the rainy season, it fills up and is a rushing river. When I was in Israel, Israel, we walked through some of these wadis. It can be dangerous to do this because if there's a heavy rain upstream, you can be walking in this very dry area and suddenly this rushing water will come down the wadi. Anyway, Elijah was drinking the water from the wadi and then twice a day, his food was delivered to him so that he could eat. But eventually, the wadi itself dried up. So God provided for him another way. God spoke to a widow who lived in another country and said to her, a prophet's going to approach you and you need to take care of him. We pick up the story in verse 10 of 1 Kings 17. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath where he entered or arrived at the city gate. There was a widow woman gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. 
Just now, I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. Here we get a sense of how bad this famine was, and the, the famine was in the whole region. Now, I don't know how God or how Elijah knew that this woman was the right woman, but he went to her and he said, I want you to give me some water, and then he said, I want you to give me some bread. And she was concerned about this because she only had enough flour and oil to prepare a little meal for herself and her son, and then she expected to die. But Elijah tested her faith. We pick up the story in verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid and do as you have said. Let me stop there for a moment. But we're going to see that Elijah should have listened to his own advice, his own counsel. He's telling her, you don't have to be afraid. And yet, we'll see that when he is challenged, he becomes very afraid. God had provided for him, but he forgot Continuing to read in verse 13, he says to her, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may eat some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. Now, I thought the story of the ravens was impressive, but this is also a tremendous story of how God provided for Elijah. And again, I'm suggesting here today that when he was threatened by Ahab's wife, Jezebel, he should have remembered how God provided for him, how God took care of him. Even the story of the ravens providing his food, the meat and the bread, should have called to mind when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were fed by manna and how God provided meat in the form of birds for them. And so he encourages this woman, prepare something for me first, a test of faith, and she passes the test and they live on this for some time. Now I want us to understand that that our God, our Father, has promised to take care of our physical needs as well. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 26. He said, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Jesus goes on to say, you shouldn't worry about what you're gonna eat and what you're gonna wear. God takes care of the, the flowers in the field. God takes care of the birds. He cares about the birds. How much more will he take care of us? And yet we forget that our God is our provider. Now again, my main takeaway here today is that we won't have to worry about the future if we remember how God has taken care of us in the past. God took care of Elijah's physical needs in the past. He provided for him in the past. But second, I wanna talk about how God answered so many of Elijah's prayers. Why didn't, when Elijah... Uh, when Jezebel threatened him, why did he not pray? We don't see an example where at that point he said, God, you've taken care of me. You've answered prayers for me in the past. I ask you to protect me. We don't see a prayer like that from Elijah. We just see him running when it happens. Now, Elijah was someone that's just like we are. James writes about this. I think sometimes we think of, of someone like Elijah and we say, well, he's somebody that 
did amazing miracles through the power of God. He's someone who saw some great answers to prayer, but I'm not Elijah. But in the book of James, James wrote, Elijah was just like you and, and I are. He's just like we are. And yet he prayed, first of all, that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain. Now, in both cases, I recognize that God had already told Elijah that he was going to cause a famine, and God had already told Elijah he was going to cause it to rain again. But God did not do that until Elijah specifically prayed about it. And God answered his prayer. And I think that's remarkable to pray that, Lord, close up the sky for three and a half years, and it happened. Amazing prayers that God answered. But Elijah prayed for something else that also was miraculous. At a certain point, the son of this widow died. And so Elijah took the boy and brought him up to the room where he was staying. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings 17, 20 to 23. We read, then he cried out to the Lord and said, my Lord God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I'm staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, my Lord God, please let this boy's life return to him. So the Lord listened to Elijah's voice and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son is alive. This is a guy that knew how to live or how to pray. Amazing prayers that God answered and these aren't the only ones he prayed. And so again, the question comes to my mind, why do we not see him stopping to pray when his life was threatened by Jezebel? It's almost like he didn't learn anything from these answers to prayer. Again, I'm suggesting here today that we won't have to worry about the future if we remember how God has taken care of us in the past. But let's look at a third story. In addition to God's provision, in addition to the prayers that God answered for him, God also proved himself and proved his power through the story that actually led to Jezebel's desire to kill him. The story is found in 1 Kings, beginning in verse, or chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. We read, after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, the famine was severe in Samaria. Now let's stop for a moment, but the story we're about to look at is one of the greatest showdowns in biblical history. I mean, I love some of the showdowns we find in the Bible, like David and Goliath. You know, it's one of these wonderful stories of the little guy defeating the big guy. Or in the book of Job, it's a remarkable showdown between God and the devil concerning the righteousness of Job. But this is one of the amazing showdowns in the Bible where Elijah said to Ahab, it's going to rain, but before it comes, I want to put a challenge before you. Picking up the story in verse 19, Elijah said this to Ahab, now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? 
If Yahweh is God, that's the personal name for God in the Old Testament, it means I am roughly, or I am that I am is the translation of that. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. And then we come up with the test, beginning in verse 23. Let two bowls be given to us. They, referring to the prophets of Baal and Asherah, they are to choose one bowl for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I'll prepare the other bowl and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people answered, that sounds good. I love their response. It's like they heard this challenge and they said, this is a great idea. Like, this is going to be fun. Which God is going to be the greatest? Now, one thing that's worth noting at this point is that the God Baal was believed to be, in, in, in biblical times, to be the God of, of rain, and he was also the God of lightning, which is very significant to this story because this story began when Elijah said, it won't rain for three and a half years. That's what the God of Israel, Yahweh, says. It's not gonna rain for many years. And it didn't happen. And Baal, the God Baal, could do nothing about it. But now we're coming to the second challenge because Baal was recognized as the God of lightning. And so which God would set the altar and the sacrifice on fire through lightning, fire coming down from heaven. And so the people said, that's a great test. Let's find out, is Baal God or is Yahweh God? Now, now it, Elijah allowed the other group to go first. There were, again, 450 of one group and 400 of the other, 800 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And so they took an altar and they cut up a bull they put the wood on the altar for the fire. They, they placed the bull on the altar, and then they waited to see what would happen. We pick up the story in verse 26. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. I love this description. They're crying out, they're shouting, but nobody hears, nobody answers. And so they dance around and it says they're hobbling around the altar. It's at this point in the story, I find it a little bit humorous because Elijah does what's called these days some trash talking. He throws out this challenge in verse 27. It says, at noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly for he is a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, or maybe he's on the road, or perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Though this might sound a little disgusting, when Elijah made the statement, maybe he has wandered away, a lot of theologians, Hebrew scholars say what that meant in Bible times was, maybe he went to the restroom. Maybe he's busy over here. 
Elijah was laughing at them, mocking them, and all day long these prophets went at it, even cutting themselves, shedding blood, but nothing happened. I, I suspect at this point in the story, the Israelites and everyone walk, watching this thought, well, this isn't such a fun challenge after all. But then it was Elijah's turn. It was time for the evening sacrifice. And so he told the people, I want you to, I want you to come closer. And then he built an altar, one that had been used to, to offer sacrifices to the true and living God. And he took 12 big stones, these stones representing the family lines of Israel, and he built this altar and he put wood on the altar and he, he cut up the bowl. And then he did something that was kind of unique. He cut a trench around the whole thing, a deep trench that would hold several gallons of water. And there were some water pots nearby. There were four of them. And he said, what I want you to do is fill up those pots with water. I, I suspect they held about four or five gallons each. But he filled up these four pots and he said, I want you to pour it on the altar. And so they did. Then he said, do it again. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it again. And by now everything was soaked with water and the trench was filled up with water. Water was everywhere. And then he prayed. In 1 Kings 18, 36, we read, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I'm your servant. That at your word, I've done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then Yahweh's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. I hope that when we get to heaven, I can see a replay of this scene because I just want to see the expression on their faces when suddenly lightning came down from heaven and it didn't just consume the sacrifice, but it, it consumed everything so that the only thing that was left was dust. And all the people couldn't get on their faces fast enough. Yahweh's God, Yahweh's God. It was at this point that Elijah said, arrest all the false prophets and put them to death. And so they were carted down to the stream and all 850 of them were put to death. I recognize that this may seem extreme in our culture today, but this was the penalty in the Old Testament for people that would lead other people astray to false gods. They were to be put to death. And so Elijah did this. And so Elijah had seen some really amazing things up to this point. And I'm suggesting that he wouldn't have had to have worried about the future if he had remembered what God had done in the past. But the story with Elijah wasn't done yet. Elijah went to King Ahab and he said, it's going to rain real soon. And at this point, I think there was just one tiny cloud up there. But he told Ahab, you better get going because the rain is coming and it's gonna be a lot of rain. And so Ahab got in his chariot and headed back home. Now understand this, home was 20 miles away. But we read in this story that suddenly God took care of Elijah and empowered him to run the whole distance and he got back home before Ahab did. He actually beat Ahab, he ran a marathon. It's when he got home though that Ahab told Jezebel all that had happened and about the tests that had taken place and how all 850 of these prophets that used to eat with her every night 
were put to death and she put out her threat. When Elijah heard that his life was threatened, he ran for his life. Now realize he just run a marathon, but God gave him the strength to run to the southernmost part, to Beersheba, the lowest part of Israel. And then he ran another 15 miles into the desert. At this point in the story, we read that he fell asleep. But eventually he was awakened by an angel who gave him freshly baked bread. He ate the bread, the angel gave him something to drink as well. He ate and he drank and he fell asleep again. And then we read, an angel woke him up a second time and gave him more bread and water. And he told Elijah, I want you to, to eat all of this because we have a long trip ahead of us. And on that one meal, Elijah traveled for the next 40 days and 40 nights. He traveled the equivalent of about 200 miles and found himself at the very mountain in which God had given Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments. All of this was significant. It was, all of it was a message for Elijah. What about the 40 days and 40 nights? What was that about? It was a reminder of how God had taken care of the Israelites for 40 years. For 40 years, they were protected. For 40 years, they were provided for. For 40 years, they saw the power of God. God had presented himself to them. And, uh, and all of this would have come to mind to Elijah. And yet I find it remarkable that despite all that Elijah had seen, he's in despair. Even after he traveled all that distance, he prayed, Lord, I'm just done. You know, I, I, just, I just don't want to live anymore. And we find him discouraged. We find him scared to death for his life. He basically wanted to resign. Dr. Constable writes about this. It's remarkable that her threat, Jezebel's threat, terrified Elijah as it did. Ironically, by contrast, he had told the widow in Zeripath not to be afraid. He had just demonstrated that the gods in whom she, Jezebel, now appealed in her curse had no power at all. He had seen the power of God. So let me summarize. God had taken care of Elijah's needs. He had seen God's provision. God had answered all kinds of prayers, prayers related to, to rain, prayers related to the power of God displayed. God answered so many prayers for this guy, and then God had proved himself time and time again. He should have been focusing on God's provision and how God had taken care of him in the past, but he didn't. An evangelist by the name of F.B. Meyer wrote, Unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstance. Let me read that again. Unbelief puts our circumstance between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstance. I think Elijah should have been looking up. I think Elijah should have been remembering. We don't have to worry about the future if we remember what God has done for us in the past. And so the main takeaway here today is this. I want to encourage you to remember. Many times in the book of the in books of the Bible, we read that the, God told the Israelites, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this. Even their clothing was to be marked by a remembrance. Put these tassels on your garments so that you will remember. I'm reminded how when Joshua went through 
the, the uh, Jordan River and crossed to the promised land. They gathered up 12 big stones and carted them into the promised land and piled them up. It was meant to be a, mem- a memorial so that in the years ahead, when the Israelites saw that pile of stones, they would ask, what is that about? And they'd be told, well, this was when God did an amazing thing. He parted the waters of the, sea, of the river so that we could pass through on dry land. We need to remember I want to encourage you to take some time to think about some questions. Where has God answered prayer for me in the past? And where has God provided for me in the past? And where has God proved himself in the past and protected me in the past? I don't think we need to be afraid. There have been many times in my life when I have been afraid, when I've been concerned about things, that I've just spent some time reciting the things that God has done for me. I remembered things like how he took care of me even in high school against the bully that was chasing me. I remember how he took care of me when I was mugged and protected me in other occasions. I'm reminded how he's answered prayers concerning financial needs certain times as a church here where I just was almost desperate and God answered those prayers. I want to encourage you to take one or two hours and just reflect on the ways in which God has taken care of you. Because I think it'll help us as we remember what God has done for us in the past. Then it'll help us trust him for the future to believe that he's able to help us in the future. Let's pray. Lord God, you are mighty and awesome. You've demonstrated your power throughout the pages of the Bible, but also in our own lives. We acknowledge that you have answered prayers. We acknowledge that you are good. We acknowledge you've blessed us in many, many ways. We ask you, Lord, that you would now help us to apply what we've heard today. And when we face various circumstances, Lord, that we would trust you, that we remember what you've done in the past so that we'll trust you in the future. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.